Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me speaking to you from my house as I've been doing since early March. And it turns out I'll be doing that for some time, maybe through the end of the year, maybe into 2021. Um, It's just sort of starting to sink in that uh, work from home is pretty permanent uh, or at least semi-permanent. Anyway, I hope you're all well. I hope you're safe. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing. Thank you for tweeting. We appreciate all of those communications. Uh, two podcasts for you today, two interviews. The first is an interview with CEO of Wondery, Hernan Lopez. Wondery is a podcast company you may have heard about. They do quite well with true crime podcasts and other long-form narrative pieces. Um, frequently brought up as an acquisition target during all of the uh, podcasting M&A we've been watching for the last few months. Hernan Lopez is also the first guest I've interviewed who's been accused of wire fraud and money laundering by the federal government. Uh, We talked about that case just sort of tangentially um, in terms of how it affects his operation of the business. Um, I'm not the right guy to interview him about the actual charges, which relate to scandals involving international soccer and the World Cup. I'm sure there are smarter people who are equipped to do that interview. It's not me. Uh, But we did talk about it. Uh, we also got a conversation with The Ringer's Alyssa Bereznak, who has a very cool long-form podcast project about HQ Trivia. Remember HQ Trivia? About the, the rise and fall. It's called Boom Bust. Very good name. Talked a bit about what it's like to put together a long-form podcast, which is something I'm very interested in since I'm finishing one of my own, which I'm going to bring to you guys in the very near future. We also just talked about tech companies and startups and sort of the culture of startups. Um, If you like listening to this podcast, that podcast is very much up your alley. So let's get into it now. Here is my conversation with Wondery CEO Hernan Lopez. I'm here speaking with Hernan Lopez, CEO of Wondery. Nice to have you on. Thank you, Peter, for having me. It's a pleasure. I have to say, uh, you are someone that I wanted to speak to for a long time. You and I were going to speak in uh, South by one of many meetings that didn't happen mm-hmm. uh, in March. And I was a little surprised when someone suggested that I speak to you recently, only because since we tried to talk initially, um, you have now been indicted on federal charges. Um, and this is legal stuff, so I want to make sure I get it right. But the federal government is accusing you of wire fraud, money laundering, and related offenses. Um I'm not the right person to litigate that conversation with you, but I did want to talk to you about why you're speaking to me, uh, given the circumstances, and and more broadly, how you're going about running a podcast company, which is Wondery, um, while you're facing federal charges. 
Well, thank you for asking. First, I can say that I did nothing wrong. That's the main reason why I'm running the company that I started and I poured my heart and my soul into over the last four and a half years. I can't obviously speak too much about the specifics, a pending case, but I can tell you that the events that the government alleges happened uh, anywhere between five and 15 years ago and had nothing to do with Wondery and I had nothing to do with them. As I mentioned, um, there's really not much that I can do uh, It's um, other than to fight it in court. I'm convinced that when the facts are in front of a jury, the jury will see that um, what, what I'm saying. But um, I am also heartened that I had the support of my employees, my investors, uh, my listeners through this whole time, because it's not easy, but it's what I have to do. So, and just to fill out some context for listeners, um, I should have done a better job of setting this up. Wondery is 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 one of the last sort of significant, uh, or uh, it is a significant independently owned uh, podcasting company. Often comes up when we talk about mergers and acquisitions that have been happening here, and the specifics around the federal charges. You can go look them up; um, they're on the the DOJ website under justice.gov. Um, they relate to the way that uh, football. Uh, Television contracts were handed out around the World Cup and some other big tournaments. They relate to, to what you were doing at Fox Sports, uh, which is what you were doing prior to working here. And again, I'm not the right person to ask you about the specifics, and I don't think you'd be able to help me very much there. But I did want to ask you about how you have talked to your employees, your investors, and then outsiders, people like me, because I'm sure this comes up in pretty much every conversation. Um, they want to know about the business, and they also want to know about the fact that that you've been charged with these offenses. So how do you practically sort of handle that day to day? It's a simple conversation. They, they first need to know that they know my true character. Everybody who knows me knows that that is not me. There's nothing in me that would have done the things that the government is alleging or would have um, um, uh, approved or, or even uh, known about what the government is alleging. So it is has been obviously uh, a very careful line that I have to walk and have to navigate and it has been painful for me and my family to have to have these conversations. But what really has uh, kept me going is the fact that well, we are building a great business. We have 65 very dedicated employees. All of them are stock or option holders who are helping me uh, bring amazing stories to podcast listeners all over the world. And the side distraction, it's really not a distraction for anybody in my business. It's uh, something for lawyers to deal with. And as I said, I'm looking forward to the day that I have a trial and I can prove uh, to the jury that what I've been saying is right, but that will uh, take some time. I'm going to ask one last time, just because it's it's this the, the indictments uh, were released uh, March 18th. We're sort of full into the, the pandemic. At that point, everyone had gone from thinking this was an abstract thing or a thing that was uh, affecting Asia to pretty much a lockdown of the entire country. You were starting to get a sense of uh, how significant this was going to be for business. Um, people who are in the advertising business like yourself were getting a sense of of what was might be happening to the ad market. Um, did you have to, and so there'd be a lot of uncertainty for any company, 
a lot of uncertainty for any company that's in a new media space, a lot of a lot of uncertainty for any business that's dependent on advertising. So you're all of those. Mm-hmm. Then you have a, a federal indictment release. Did you have to gather all the employees? I'm assuming at this point you probably dispersed and they were all working from home anyway. Did you address them all on a Zoom call? Is this an email? How do you handle that situation? So I, I did. I, I let them know ahead of time uh, on a Slack message because I wanted them to hear from me before they heard from You're You're going to see an indictment coming out. This is and, and, give you a heads up. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, I was very, wonder is a company where openness is a value, is something that we really appreciate and honesty and transparency. And I was transparent with my employees. I, the, as it happens, the next day was our um, all uh, employee staff uh, day. It happens every Tuesday. It's called the parliament because it's a gathering of owls uh, that used to be our mascot. And uh, that's when I address it. And I address it at every time that it's come up since. But I got to say some of the nicest emails I've ever seen uh, from people from this time came from my employees. It's just the output of support. People, as I tell you, people who know me know that that's not me. Do you get any guidance about sort of how to, I've talked to a bunch of people who've been running companies who are sort of trying to figure out on the fly how to talk and how to communicate to their employees when there's tremendous uncertainty. Um, there's no real playbook for it. Did you have any guidance uh, from anyone who's been anything remotely similar to this before? Uh, I grew up in Argentina, so I was born through crisis in hyperinflation and uh, multiple currency devaluations and multiple economic crises. So over my career, I've, I've lived through a number of crises. So I, I had some experience in how to talk to people, how to make them feel safe through moments of uncertainty. Obviously, coronavirus started as something that people thought was going to be potentially a small problem then turn into a big health problem and then turn into a significant economic problem. And uh, we're still in the middle of it. We don't know how it's going to turn out. But I have to say that the experience that I had over the years has helped me. So there's no way to make an elegant pivot out of this. So we'll just pivot out of this and maybe we'll come back to it later. Um, let's explain where Wondery was at pre-pandemic. Um, I think you guys are best known for creating um, narrative podcasts, uh, often based on true crime stories. Uh, Dirty John is the one that I think gets mentioned most often. Um, and have had some luck turning those podcasts into packages that Hollywood wants to make TV shows, streaming shows, movies. You said you had 65 employees. And the company is, I think, what, three years old? Um, four and a half years. This is our fifth Four and a half years old. My apologies. So how were things working pre-pandemic for you? Things were working great. And uh, I, I, I'm very proud even of the way we have performed through the pandemic. But the uh, the main elevator pitch of Wondery is uh, think of us as you think of Marvel, except that instead of superheroes, we have complex real-life characters, characters like Dirty John, characters like Mike and uh, Mark and uh, Ike from The Street Next Door, characters like uh, Christopher Dunn from Dr. Death. And what we've done in the podcast space that I don't think anybody else has done our scale is that we created these zeitgeisty stories. I, I know that that's not a word, but it's a word that we use here. Um, I got it. It's stories that really get people talking, not just listening, but get people talking. We've done, since um, we started, 25 of our shows have been number one on Apple Podcasts. 16 of them have been optioned to television uh, to for scripted television. Three of them have already been ordered to series, and there's a fourth one coming up. And last year, we were responsible 
for eight of the top 20 new shows of 2019 on the PodTrack Ranker. So we really put ourselves in a position where we're telling stories that are narrative, that are immersive, that are mostly based on true stories. Only one of them is an audio drama. I'll, I'll get to that later. And we tell them in a style that is so unique to Wondery that when people listening to a Wondery story, even before the Wondery Sonic logo starts, they know they're in the Wondery universe. They're very much the same way that people watch a Marvel or a Pixar movie and they know it's Marvel or Pixar. That's what we've achieved on Here Wonder, and that's what we want to do. Is the Wondery business model run a successful advertising-based business and then on top of that hope that you're able to sell some TV shows and movies? Or is the premise that the movies and TV shows and that IP is eventually the most valuable part of the company? Both are true because our shows need to be profitable just with advertising. And when television money comes in or, or film money, although it's been only uh, uh, television and books, then that's a cherry on top. Uh, but then in addition to that, we're building a library of evergreen assets because we have taken a choice that I think nobody else is taking the podcast space. If you look at most podcasts, they are inspired by the world of radio. Most of the shows are topical, they're um, of the moment, they're interview-based. And by definition, those shows, which account for the majority of all listening, don't have library value or don't have a You're lot You're saying of... no one wants to listen to this podcast in 10 years? Well, actually, I did listen to a lot of your episodes from last year and the year before, but Perfect. in 10 years, maybe less so. Uh -huh. But uh, the shows that we're making, that we're chosen uh, to make, are shows that are designed to be relevant for five years, 10 years from now. I don't know if they will be, but I can tell you that we're generating advertising revenue and licensing revenue today from shows that we released uh, two and three years ago. And so these, those shows are much more expensive to produce. You have to have writers. They take a lot of time to put together. You need actors to come in and, and actually act. Um, I'm speaking to you from my bedroom, sitting mm -hmm. on my floor. Uh, I'm using a pretty cheap mic. Looks fancy, but it's pretty cheap. Um, and some fairly cheap uh, software to talk to with you on the internet. Um, what does it cost to produce a scripted show for you guys? What's an average cost? I, I Actually, when you say actors, we don't hire actors. Uh, that's only true of the audio dramas, like Blood Ties. But a show like Dirty John, a show like Dr. Death, a show like The Shrink Next Door, those are all real voices. So mm -hmm. those are the voices of the actual people and then the narrator, who's uh, sometimes a reporter and sometimes is a hired voice. Um, and those shows cost anywhere in the... Um, if you look at a miniseries, the cost in the low six figures to produce and another low six figures to market. And if we're successful, we'll recoup the investment just in the advertising first run. And then on top of that, you have the television and other licensing opportunities and the library advertising that will come once the episode has been listened to multiple times. So you, but you're talking about costs of two hundred fifty thousand or, or more, right? As an average for for one of these shows, for one of those miniseries, that's a yeah. fair number. By conventional podcast uh, numbers, those are those are very high. Did anyone try to steer you out of that from the get go? No, um, but what did happen was it was really difficult for us to raise money at the beginning. Um, I, I, when I started wondering in 2016, the conventional wisdom was a podcast was a small business and it was always going to be a small business. The total marketplace was $100 million. And the 
VCs that I talked to um, all had assumed that this would not be a scale business. And so I had to bootstrap the company for the first two years um, until Dirty John changed everything because Dirty John was a show that was listened to by so many people that really gave us the confidence that we could pull a Marvel. Um, and by pull a Marvel, I meant creating some shows that are so unique, that have this cinematic sound that people get hooked on minute by minute. And then through uh, marketing that's also borrowed from the playbook of television and film, get them, instead of the goal being 500,000 uh, listeners per episode, it will be a million and a half listeners per episode. And the economics really change when, when you can get a show to be listened to by millions of listeners per episode. And that's the key. And, and Dirty John is a Los Angeles Times story. Um, how did that story end up at, at, at Wondery? Were people competing for it? Did you have to go to the Times and say this could be a podcast? It's, it was really the fact that we happened to be here in Los Angeles and they were at the time interested in doing their own version of the daily. So the, the then editor, Davan Maharaj, uh, called me for a meeting and um, they, he asked me whether we could help them produce their own version of the daily. We want to make a daily news show. We want to make a daily news show. And uh, I recommended that if they really wanted to take the playbook from the uh, New York Times, they wanted to start with a project where the chances of success were higher relative to the risk of producing. And so we looked at a number of stories that they that they had, and uh, Dirty John came up at the time, was called Dirty John's uh, Last Con. I suggested that they get rid of Last Con. And we worked with Christopher Goffard, an amazing, extremely talented, award-winning uh, reporter from the late times who had been following the story for about six months, I think, at the time. He had some tape, which we had to uh, redo. And then we worked over the next six months on getting the story to uh, where it ended up being. And uh, we launched it, and it was one of the most successful things that we've done uh, and one of the most successful podcasts. It's been considered a gateway podcast for many people that mm -hmm. are listening to a podcast for the first time, the way that Serial, obviously, is the ultimate gateway podcast. So you guys are taking true stories, in most cases, creating podcasts around them, and then, and then trying to get Hollywood interested in them. Hollywood also does that, right? They, they have people, it used to happen much more often, they have people scouring the papers, someone fell down a well, maybe that's an interesting story, let's see if we can go get the life rights. Their job is to have people developing this stuff all the time. Um, it seems like inserting yourself in the middle of it is both something that makes sense and also very difficult to sort of win consistently. Um, I talked with the Gimlet guys back before they were owned by Spotify. They were making the same pitch that they knew how to sort of create stories for Hollywood. Uh, they could create stories for movies and TV, and they had the special capacity to do it. And I was a little stuck on the idea that they had figured out something that people who make TV and movies professionally didn't know how to do or, or would find more valuable than the work they were already doing. Does that make sense? Does make sense. Um, yes, I, I think uh, we've been successful because we. I come from the world of television, so does uh, so do a lot of people that work at um, here at Wondery, and we know when a story gets pitched to us, what kinds of questions a television executive would ask before deciding this is a story one want to buy or this is not a story that I want to buy, and when we shape in the story. We're shaping the story thinking this is going to be so compelling that listeners are going to be hooked minute by minute. And is it going to be so compelling that the television community will find it 
um, a great television show. So it's, it all starts with characters. We want to make sure that the characters are very clearly defined, that we are a true hero if there is a true villain, and that we have stakes that people really are watching the show um, because there's a burning question at the core of the show. And that question may end up being something different from what we end up answering at the end. Uh, so again, we've done it. Now 16 of our shows have been uh, optioned for television and with number of different studios and streamers. And, uh, and that's uh, something that, that we're getting every day that, that we do more of it, we're getting a little, a, a little better. This is a fast moving space, fast growing. Um, bunch of questions about sort of how things are playing out right now. First of all, in terms of your business, uh, in the pandemic, anyone who's been in the ad business has, has seen that, that business shrink uh, significantly in many cases. What, what's been going on with the ad business for you folks? The ad business is a question that is smaller than it would have been if the pandemic hadn't happened. Uh, we're still going to grow this quarter uh, in in uh, the, the second quarter of the year compared to last year. We You'll be grew, up year over year. Yeah, yeah, we're going to grow. We, we grew a lot in April. We grew a little less in May. And I'm confident that by the time June numbers are in, we're going to grow year over year. And is that because your total inventory of shows has increased or, or you're actually selling more? I mean, are you, are, are you, uh, is it a matter of... of more audience for the shows you have, you're producing more shows, or simply just that there's continuing to see an influx of advertisers? The, the, there's all of those. Um, there's uh, definitely an increase in audience and an increase in number of advertisers. Obviously, sell-through rates are lower in this quarter than they were in the first quarter. I think that's true for anybody in the media world, podcasting or not. But uh, yes, we're, we're still growing. And I think we're growing, and, and that's true of other players in the podcast space, because podcast ads give a lot of value. Um, as you know, most of them are still companies that measure directly the effect of the ad on sales. And when they see return, they renew. Um, but in the last six uh, months, we've done a concerted, we made a concerted effort to get closer to brand advertisers and entertainment advertisers. Actually, entertainment is a category that's done very well for us, streamers, uh, television uh, networks, because Again, they want to be attached to those shows that are buzzworthy, that our people are talking about. For instance, um, Joe Exotic Tiger King. You probably know that mm -hmm. before the Tiger King documentary was released, we had aired, we had released um, the, the show Joe Exotic Tiger King back in August, and there was a new influx of listeners coming in. And those are the listeners that are really curious about what other people are talking about. And what are you seeing in terms of listening trends? Um, there was a big debate about about how far about watching podcast usage drop in the in the immediate uh, start of the pandemic. Personally, my pandemic podcast usage is way down, and I'm someone who probably spent easily ten hours a week listening to podcasts. It's probably down to a couple max right now. What are you guys seeing? Uh, we're seeing we're now not yet back to where we were, but we're pretty close to where we were pre-pandemic. We're at a percentage decline that is in the mid single digits. Uh, at the bottom, we had dropped 17% uh, from top mm -hmm. to bottom. Uh, that was the week of March 30th. And then we've been growing every single week a little bit. And uh, I think that's true for a lot of the industry. We're seeing that there's a high correlation between cars on the road and podcast listening, uh, which is why on the weekends there's less podcast listening. But in addition to that, um, publishers publish less episodes in the weekends. So the same thing has happened um, in, in the podcast space. So for instance, we had 
two of our biggest event miniseries that were scheduled to be released in the second quarter, we weren't going to launch them against a lower ad environment and a lower listening environment. So we have pushed them to the third quarter. And I think uh, that's us, uh, reality. That's interesting because you're seeing the flip side of that with video, right? Whether it's Quibi or Netflix or anyone who's got something that, that goes on the air, they are, they are pushing out as much stuff as they can, stuff that was going to air later in the year. They're moving up now, so there's new content to, to have at home. Um, why not try the same, the same idea with, with podcasting? Because every time that we create one of these uh, miniseries, that's an asset. that we, we look at an asset that will have many years and, uh, the, and the first window, think of it if the way that a movie studio thinks of a movie, um, what they did, they pushed the release to later in the year because it's hard to replace the theatrical, the value of the mm -hmm. theatrical window, obviously the success of Trolls notwithstanding. Uh, and that's the way we think of our miniseries. We think of them at how much we invest in them and how much value we're going to get over the years. And a big part of that value comes in the initial three-month window. So you're hoping things get better, uh, usage goes up, we're going to try to make a big splash with this, and we think we're That's better right. off waiting until the fall. And it's not That's like right. the movie theaters where there's you know there's still a big question about whether people can and will go to the movie theaters, right. which is why a lot of these releases have been pushed to next year. Um, right. People can listen to a podcast in the yeah. fall. And, and by the way, just don't forget that the majority of our business actually comes from ongoing shows. So people mm -hmm. don't often talk about business wars, about American history tellers, about American innovations, a new show that we launched called Even the Rich. Those shows aired 50 weeks out of the year. And those shows have not suffered because uh, one of the benefits of the podcast production ecosystem and the way we were distributed before and still are is that we've been able to produce all of those shows without any interruptions. So our listeners have been able to get their diet of wondrous shows week after week. So one of the other big changes that's been happening in the last few months and the last year is is a lot of uh, podcast M&A. We referenced that at the beginning. Most of it's done by Spotify. A few other deals have gone through as well. How is that affecting the sort of tactical parts of your business um, as you see sort of prices for podcast operations, I, I guess, going up? It's sort of hard to tell if there's not real comps. How does that affect sort of like how you produce a show on any given day, and then how does it affect how you're thinking about the value of, of your company? I guess the obvious answer is like, oh, people are more interested in podcasting, that's good for us. On the other hand, the one buyer has been Spotify for the most part. Um, at some point, I think they're going to stop buying everything, and they tend to be, now they're uh, more often buying individuals instead of uh, companies, so I'm wondering where that leaves you guys. Um, but I think, well, first of all, our focus is to build the biggest company that we can, we're not, we are VC funded, that is true, but we're not uh, looking at who's going to buy us. That's something that it's, 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 it's really a secondary conversation. We are um, very interested in making sure that every single listener that listens uh, to a podcast eventually becomes a one listener. And we are building, on the second hand, um, asset value by having more of, more of our shows. We have now 3,000 shows in the Wonder Regional Library, and the majority of them are evergreen. So the more we continue to produce at that level of quality, and the more listeners are aware of the kind of shows that Wonder produce, the more valuable our company will be, regardless of whether ultimately Spotify um, does or doesn't do what they will do, or other companies come into the space. 
But I have to say, I don't think that Spotify is the only company that is interested in assets. There are a number of other companies that you may not be hearing about, but um, the... Uh, Let's talk about them. Who else, who else is looking to buy? Because right now, when I'm, when I'm writing and reporting about these deals Spotify is doing, I don't hear about other people chasing the same properties. So who else is in the market? Obviously, we're, given that we're not in the market, I don't have privy. Uh, I'm not privy to go to conversations of the yeah, ones you, that I can. I, you, I can't. I can't give you. But you got some idea. But uh, you but, just uh, but told I, me I, was I can wrong. tell you. I can tell you about what you know groups of companies to think about. So obviously, you have the companies that are in the audio space, and in addition to Spotify, there are other companies that are subscription and audio, like SiriusXM, uh, which owns Pandora, and mm-hmm. and their their business is 100% audio. Then you got to think about the music labels, even though they haven't been as aggressive with exceptional Sony Music that has made acquisitions and have launched a number of companies. We have our own partnership with Universal Music Group. We're producing one miniseries with them. You got to think that at some point, the music labels are going to get into the space. Yeah, we talked. We had Adam Davidson on, who's doing stuff with Sony. They're, they're sort of putting their toe in the water, maybe a couple feet. Right. Then, uh, then think about the video companies, because while it is true that the video companies, the traditional established media companies, have not looked at podcasts as something big enough to move the needle, at some point, if companies like ours continue to produce um, assets and stories that turn into television and have success uh, of the scale of Dirty John, then they will think that we can become uh, the next Marvel or the next Lucasfilm. And then finally, you have a number of other buyers in the uh, in the publisher space. You obviously you um, you've been following the story that New York Times is supposed to be buying Zero Productions. They have a very significant uh, podcast operation. They're not the only ones who are in the podcast space because one of the the things that's happening right now is that people had been looking at podcasts through the lens of the podcast that existed, and they're now starting to see all of what podcasts could become. There's so many genres that haven't been exploited that I make an analogy uh, with the television world. What happened when in the year 2000, um, the new golden age of television started and we saw The Sopranos and The Wire and Sex and the City from uh, HBO. And that really started a wave of companies getting into the space effects with The Shield uh, and then AMC with Breaking Bad and Mad Men, and all those. And then in the non-scripted world, A and E with History Channel uh, really started to own the category and prompted Discovery to do more of what um, mm-hmm. they ended up doing. So, and and all of that, what it did was it drew away listener, I mean viewers from uh, broadcast television into cable and premium television, and then created the environment for streaming television. To exist, so I think you're going to see the same thing happening in audio. The main reason why we're behind is that for the longest time, nobody or very few people uh, were thinking of audio as a carrier of content that you can own and as a carrier of content that you can own evergreen assets of. And that's what we're building, and that's I think what sets us apart from everybody else. You're building a library. Libraries are very valuable. We've, we've found many times. Spotify has been the main buyer to date. And up until this last deal I did with Joe Rogan, what they've been saying when they buy stuff is, if you liked a Gimlet show, if you liked a show from Parcast, 
those shows will still be available uh, on an open platform. You don't have to come to Spotify to get them. Uh, with Joe Rogan, that is an exclusive deal. And they've done a, a few others as well. But if you want to hear Joe Rogan starting sometime this fall, you're going to have to come to Spotify. Do you think you're going to see other platforms, whether it's Apple or anybody else, saying, we're also doing exclusive deals? And, and what does that mean for a company like yours that isn't attached to a large platform to a large owner at this point? I think it, uh, it is great for companies that own content like Wondery because we are essentially a publisher and we'll be able to sell some of our shows to some of those platforms, some of those shows to other platforms, or some of those shows keep in front of everybody available through every listening platform of their choice. In addition to that, eventually we'll be able to ourselves have our own listening destination where we can have people choose between having their shows available with no ads and early or have them um, available with the um, platform of their choice with ads at the same time as everybody else. So, do, you think podcast, I, do you think podcast listeners are going to accept the idea that that this specific audio programming is only available from this platform and maybe I have to pay for it or maybe it's free? In TV, we're, we're certainly accustomed to that. ABC has shows. They're free. If you have an antenna, uh, ESPN has specific stuff. You need to pay for that. Cable. Uh, with music, uh, the labels initially, uh, years ago, tried to, to have music uh, label-specific streaming services. Those failed miserably. And everyone, you know, with some exceptions, everyone's expectation is if you use Apple Music or Spotify, you have the same access to music. Where do you think podcasts land on that continuum? Uh, I think um, it's obviously, there's no question that right now the expectation is that everything is available everywhere. And that's great. And that's a function of the way the podcasting industry has grown up. Uh, it's a function that up until recently, there were no significant forms of revenue other than advertising. So if you wanted to go over advertising as your only source of revenue. You had to be big. Yeah, you had to be big. Uh, and even if you want to build a brand, it's not just the advertising dollars to build a brand and to have your property be attractive, you have to be in front of a lot of people. But I think that people start to get more comfortable that they can't get everything for free all the time. And I think the Joe Rogan deal would probably be a marking point of what happens when a show of that scale uh, is taken away, not only from podcasting, but also from YouTube. I think that's going to be the beginning of the time when People are uh, saying that maybe they do need to have one, one, more than one listening destination. And maybe they do need to pay for more than one. I think it happens in almost every kind of media that at some point there's a premium market, marketplace that emerges that um, consumers get used to the fact that for some of the content they need to pay. And it's not going to be all consumers. It's going to be a subset of the consumers. Um, it's, uh, I, I think the free business and the ad supported business and the business that's available to everybody will still be the majority of listening for a long, long time. But I think there will be emergence of new models where people are able to monetize, um, different windows and, and different platforms. Yeah. I guess, I guess the question is how much of this stuff is fungible. And I think the premise of what you guys are making is these things aren't fungible. If you want to hear, uh, Dirty John, that's, that's the only show that exists that is Dirty John. You can't, you, you might be able to find something similar, but it's different. 
Um, and again, we've seen this TV, right? There's other versions of Game of Thrones, but if you want to see Game of Thrones, you got to see Game of Thrones. Whereas right. I think for a lot of people, music is music. It's something to have on in the background. You might be very interested in a specific kind of music or brand, but for a lot of people, it kind of doesn't matter that much. And and getting to buy it is is a convincing someone to buy it or listen on a specific platform is a much harder thing. I'll tell you the biggest difference. So think of podcasts, especially the podcasts that we made, as a bingeable television show. When somebody gets hooked into uh, Dr. Death or into Guru, the next big show that we're going to launch in the first five minutes, there's a very high chance they'll listen to the end of episode one. There's a very high chance they'll listen to the end of episode two. And there's a very high chance they want to listen all the way through the end. Retention rates from the first minute to the last minute of our miniseries uh, range anywhere from 60% to 80%. So that's really speaks to how people get a visceral reaction to the kind of shows that we make. And once they're used to the fact that those shows come from Wondery and nobody else, they're going to be more likely to want to listen to them, whether they are available everywhere or exclusive to one platform or exclusive to Wondery. Okay. I'm really curious to see how it's going to work out. I guess we're going to have to wait a year or so. Have you guys talked? I should have asked you this before. Have you talked to Spotify about them acquiring the company at some point? Obviously, we have talked to uh, Spotify a while back. It was too early for them and for us. This is before, and I hope I'm not revealing anything that they wouldn't want me to reveal. But but it was uh, not more than than a conversation, uh, and it happened before the wave. So it's so, 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 so that's the extent of our conversations. But they probably know where to find you guys. They would know where to find me. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll try to broker something for you if you need help. Um, Hernan, thank you for your time. I appreciate this. I look forward to seeing you in person somewhere at some point in the future. Thank you very much. Likewise, this has, has been great, and I'm glad that we did it, even though it yeah, obviously it, it took us a few months to get this meeting uh, set up. But uh, I really appreciate coming on the show and having the chance to uh, give you the Wondery story. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again to Hernan Lopez for speaking with us. We're going to hear from Melissa Bresnak in a second, but first we're going to hear from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, here is our conversation with Alyssa Bereznak. I'm here with Alyssa Bereznak, who has spent a year of her life writing about an app that you used at least once in your life. Welcome, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Give us the formal title of your podcast. It's called Boom Bust, Boom Slash Bust, yep. HQ Trivia. 
HQ trivia. Remember HQ trivia? When was when was HQ trivia's heyday? HQ trivia's heyday was around 2016, 17 to 2018, 19, depending on how dedicated a player you were. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to bracket it into months. There were a few months where everyone was playing HQ trivia or at least heard of it. And if you worked where I worked and talked to people who did what I did, there was a lot of various serious thinking about whether this was a huge hit game or the future of entertainment. But either way, it was a giant deal. And now we have to sort of remember what happened to it. And that's the story you're telling. Yeah, exactly. And um, as someone who's written about tech and culture for many, many years of my career, I just found that this company actually really embodied a lot of themes I've circled over the years. Themes about legacy, themes about how Silicon Valley works, themes about celebrity and performance in the context of a startup. And so uh, that's what the story is about. Yeah, there's, there's greed, there's tragedy. When did it click in for you that this is a thing? You did spend like a year on this, right? Yeah, I mean, I was doing other stuff. Um, I wasn't just thinking about HQ for a whole year, but a good amount of it. I Yeah, it was, I think, like spring of last year that uh, I was on vacation and someone from work slacked me a link about Scott Rogowski leaving the company. Mm-hmm. And at this point, a lot had happened already. You know, there was the infamous Sweet Green incident, which is detailed in the first two episodes of the podcast. And that's, uh, by the way, that the Sweet Green incident is what some people might remember as a really innocuous interview that turned into a shitstorm because uh, the CEO of the company had a, had a problem with it. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. I mean, and it, it was it was when back when Taylor Lorenz was an unknown internet writer for the Daily Beast instead of the queen of all media. That put her on the map. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's kind of amazing. Uh, but like the way that all went down was just. I'm, in my opinion, one of the biggest media blunders I can remember <laughs> in history. Um, or not in history, but just in terms of just like how to handle the press and what to do when it comes to managing your talent. So anyway, the uh, that had already happened. And then um, this report was about how there was a mutiny within, inside the company and they had um, lost their main host, who was the celebrity of the app, who kind of put it on the map and who was like its real representative. And I thought, maybe something's there. And so I I spent the the next year being in touch with a lot of um, employees and former employees, um, interviewing experts and journalists who reported on uh, HQ Trivia and trying to understand with this big thesis of why do the things we love on the internet always die? Why is everything so ephemeral? Um, and of course, there there was a lot more uncovered after that. I want to talk more about HQ Trivia, but since we're podcasting, I want to ask you about podcasting. Um, did you go and pitch this to your ringer bosses and say, I'm going to spend a year working on a podcast? Were they asking for long form stuff? The ringer has done very, very well in podcasting, as we know, because you are now a Spotify employee. There's a Spotify PR person sitting quietly on the other side of this this line, uh, listening. But almost all of the Ringer's output to date has been sort of men and women talking about stuff that's happened relatively recently, like in the last week. Um, not a lot of long form enterprise projects like this. Was it something they were asking for, or you had to pitch? You know, I had pitched a couple of other podcasts over, um, like over the past couple months before this one came along, and. I think it's just a matter of like finding the right project for the right person. You know, like I I think I had started thinking about podcasting 
in the terms of like how a lot of other people at the company did it. But my strength has always been in reporting and feature writing. And it just makes sense that you would have a long form podcast sort of be the audio equivalent of that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it was like brought to me, like maybe we could do a podcast on this and it was unclear what form it would take. But um, once I started build like building sources and imagining the narrative in my head, it just seemed like this was the correct format. And I've learned a lot. This is my first long form podcast and it's been really fun. It's like a story in 3D. I'm sure you, as someone who's also working on your own long form reported podcast, you you can attest. <laughs> yeah, this could just be notes on how, how, how to and how not to make a long form podcast. So I'm, I'm doing finishing one on, on Netflix now. It'll be out uh, near the end of June. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people who have formerly worked at Netflix, but we're also talking to people who still work there, including the CEO and the founders, and that's a, a decision they've made to sort of participate. Uh, in this case, uh, HQ Trivia doesn't really exist. One of the founders is dead. How did that affect your reporting? Sort of, There's no sort of there there to sort of direct you or steer you or tell you not to write about something. On the other hand, there's sort of everyone scattered to the wind. Sure. I mean, let me correct you on one front. HQ Trivia still does exist. It actually relaunched in the process of of us reporting the story. It shut Good down and then check. relaunched. <laughs> um, it is essentially gone, but all right, it's still there. <laughs> I, I'll I'll let you make that characterization. I'll accept, I'll accept your fact check. <laughs> um, and uh, so, and there is still a co-founder, uh, Rest Yusupov, uh-huh. and uh, we've been in touch with his people. They've commented in some form, and you'll hear that later on in the podcast. Um, we're still hoping that he sits for an interview, and maybe it'll take listening to a couple more episodes. Yeah, I do agree that um, it was very difficult in in reference to Colin Kroll, who died of an overdose um, in uh, 2000... I think 2018. 2019, um, I think. 2019, yeah, sorry. Yep. I'm, all the uh, years are mixed together in my head. He... He, he's definitely a character in the series and I really wanted to honor his memory. And um, part of the way I did that was uh, through speaking to his colleagues and um, his father. And I think it was important for me to paint him as a character in relation to the company and respect certain personal things about him. We were able to get a hold of some audio of him that you'll hear in later episodes. And so that was one way we could do that is, is, sort, is sort of to um, let him speak for himself. And yeah, I mean, that was definitely the the episode, um, the episode where we focus on Colin is the episode where I put the most of my resources and attention because it's a really sensitive thing. And um, it's important that you honor someone's memory and do right by them. One of the things, there's many things that are interesting with HQ Trivia. One is that it's the men who created it. It was their second successful startup. They had built Vine and before Vine ever launched, Twitter bought it. It made them all sort of uh, set for life. They certainly didn't have to work again. Um, there's a very weird subset of founders who have enormous success right out of the the gate and then are sort of paralyzed about what to do next. And it's a very high quality problem. <laughs> how did those, and it was two of the three founders made HQ, how did they decide this was the thing they wanted to do after Vine? Yeah, I, I think that what you um, are speaking to is correct. In the third episode that just aired, our, our Partners and Rivals episode, um, one of our sources in that mentioned that, that there is this 
sort of you you freeze after you've had a hit and you want it, you, everything you do to be as good as that. And that's you don't want to be known you. as the guy who got lucky. Exactly. You, and you you want your legacy. And Silicon Valley has taught us that, right? Like um, as someone who grew up there and has seen all the ways that tech founders lionize their accomplishments, it, it's very clear that there's sort of a set path that you need to do that on. Everything is is focused on, um, you know, planting your flag somewhere and, and making it known that this is your thing and you're good at it. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, they they were... They were definitely a little bit paralyzed in that sense where it was hard to iterate and they wanted to be creative. And at the beginning when they founded a company called Hype before HQ, um, it was so small and there were so few eyeballs on them that they were actually really able to be very creative. Uh, at least that's what I've heard from a lot of the people who worked there. And, and then it was only once it, so they landed on HQ and it started to become this hit. And HQ, as you know, uh, on the like sort of top left corner counts all the people in every game. And there's that view count that is sort of ha- like haunting the entire company when it comes to putting out this product that you want to be proud of. That was when everything started falling apart. Every time that view count number fluctuated and went down, there was sort of a scramble to figure out like, what's wrong? What are we doing? And I I think it was really distracting for them. They weren't able to focus on their strengths and being creative and iterating and being flexible. There was this already rigid idea of how to succeed. And those metrics were a little messed up in my mind. Do you remember your first impression of HK Trivia? I'm sure you do. You know, it's funny. I don't actually remember the first time I played it. And that is, I'm, (laughs) I've used this metaphor a couple of times, but when I consume online culture or anything on the internet, it's like a whale opening their mouth underwater. (laughs) I just like let it all come in and then it just like becomes part of my life. Um, But I do remember just being like, whoa, I'm so excited to do this. Like when was the last time that I just got like pumped to go online at a certain time and share an experience with everyone? And the like the music and the production level was amazing. It was super higher energy. I'm not really even like a trivia person, yeah. but I just loved that it brought together this um, community of people online who seemed like-minded or at, the, at least could um, find joy in the same thing. I don't know how you felt about it. I remember hearing about it and I knew people who knew and they were sort of talking it up, but I was like, oh, fine. But there was a, it was a cool... And these are pretty rare these days, but it sort of reminded us, reminded me of sort of earlier in the internet when you found something that was on the internet and it was cool and you got to enjoy it and you didn't have to really worry about if it was a bad thing, if it was going to destabilize democracy. <laughs> um, it helped, by the way, that it didn't come from Facebook or Twitter, right? It was just some company you'd never heard of uh, and they seemed to be sort of making it up on the fly. And yeah, it had and had a sort of a scratchy, fun quality to it. I don't know that it mattered that it was also a New York company as opposed to a Valley company. I think it probably doesn't matter. Do you think that matters? I don't think it matters just because a lot of the funding they got came from Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. a, um, many of the sort of values and things that they put forth were very Silicon Valley-esque. But I do think it helped when it came to making it more communal because everyone's so stuck together in in New York and the tech scene is so small there. Why do you think there aren't HQ, successful HQ clones? These guys were able to make it. It didn't seem like they had created anything that couldn't be duplicated. It didn't seem like there was any special tech there. And it certainly seemed like something that a Facebook or a Twitter or literally anyone could have made. Why do you think it doesn't exist somewhere else? 
Yeah, I mean, Facebook did create, I think they created something called Confetti, which was their copycat. And there was another one that was super shameless called The Q. <laughs> but they, and they took a long time, though. They didn't pop it out right away. I mean, I remember asking someone at Facebook and they said, well, actually, it's much more complicated to do that you would think because it's Facebook. It helps if you're just off on your own, you can, you can whip this up. But people like the idea of it, right? People like the idea of a collective trivia game that happened really quickly where you could earn some money. It seems like someone else should be doing this. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the production value was the thing that kept people coming back to, to HQ Trivia, and it was the talent. And it's really interesting because those are sort of emblems of a classic media company, right? Like, that, that's the true tension of HQ Trivia. It was always in this weird gray area between traditional tech company and media company. And the fact that Scott Rogowski, the host, had so much power in this instance, so much leverage, it's impossible to sort of like, you know, spread that everywhere in, in order to become bigger as a tech company, which is what startups are always hoping to do. Right. Um, how can we but, how can we stamp out a million versions of this without having to make another version of it? Exactly. Like Scott held a lot of power. And I think it illustrates a big tension that's happening now between platforms and sort of the personalities and talent who get big on those platforms. They have social media followings and and reputations all their own, and they have a lot of power to negotiate their role in the company in that sense. And you definitely see that tension later on in our podcast. Yeah, I don't think it's new, by the way. I mean, I know that we're all reading about Call Your Daddy and Barstool, but there's been versions of that for a long time. I definitely oh, throughout the internet era. It goes back and forth. So is there a lesson from the, the rise and fall and kind of rise again of HQ Trivia? Yeah, I would say that uh, we need to re-examine our metrics of success and what our goals are in terms of the uh, business world. I find that a lot of the mistakes that HQ Trivia made were not necessarily individual to their company, but had to do with the structure of that they were entering in in the first place. Um, I also Meaning, think it has wait, to wait, do- Wait, 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 I'm gonna stop. What, what, what do you mean the sure. structure? Are you talking about funding and, and, and venture capital or something yeah. else? Definitely. Uh, funding and venture capital, um, when when you're pitching your startup to an investor, you're pitching it with the sky-high idea, not as a small business, and that can sometimes influence the way you approach things. I think that there are metrics for success in terms of uh, measuring their success um, with that number in the left-hand corner was really problematic for a lot of reasons. I think them getting really big from media attention seemed like a great thing at the beginning, but it also sort of sabotaged them from within. So those are all lessons, I think, to remember when you're trying to build a sustainable business that maybe instant pickup and instant virality isn't always the healthiest thing. And was was there much debate about, about them going and getting funding? They had a hit. They basically more or less self-funded that first iteration of the company, right? Maybe some... No, some that was from Lightspeed Ventures. They had Lightspeed um, from, from, the, from the get-go? Yeah, it was okay. eight million. Yeah, they they did their seed and Series A. Got it. I guess I'm thinking of, of maybe it was a later round, but there was definitely a point where it was clear they had a hit game. It was clear that that game would be successful for a while and then would probably diminish over time. And if their pitch was, "We're going to make a bunch more of these," and my thought was, "There's really no evidence that you will." I mean, maybe you will, but the high likelihood that you won't. And I would think both as a company as an investor, you'd go we could try to hope we find more of these and make a much bigger thing, or we could just take this thing which is highly successful and should be highly profitable and just run it as is. 
Was that a discussion that was going on? That was a huge tension. The, the way they pitched it with that um, next round of funding, which put the valuation of their company at $100 million, mm-hmm. and that was through Founders Fund, um, was that this would be the future of television. That right. HQ was a platform, um, and it would be like a new Netflix, except for live event television. And you could see, um, I mean, there was a lot of power struggle at that moment, and Colin Kroll replaced Russ as CEO. And you'll hear a lot more about that in the podcast. But his vision was to build many, many more shows. And you could see in his vision that they wanted to replicate sort of cable programming in that sense. And so I I think that in in that context, it makes a lot of sense that this could be a more sustainable and much larger company. But yeah, I mean, I think leaving it at HQ Trivia was a death nail for the company if you wanted to think of it in this large way. If you wanted to run a small business, you know, like there are plenty of games out there that can just sustain on their game by keeping a loyal set of users and relying on whales to spend a lot of money on in-app purchases and all of that. Um, So, I mean, that was a tension, right? Like, in order to build the future of television, you have to give us more than one hit game. And they were never able to get there. Right. I mean, the thing is, as we see over and over in TV from people who are professional TV programmers, right, they miss all the time. Yeah. And it's Uh, expensive. (laughs) And it's expensive. And getting one hit out of the gate is great, but it does not ensure that you'll ever have another one. Anything else you want to leave us with as we're thinking about your podcast, but before we start consuming your podcast, what should we be thinking about? about, What should we know about HQ Trivia that we didn't know, perhaps? Uh, I think that what is stood out to me this entire time is that it was filled with, it's like a, it's a, not only is it a story or cautionary tale about how business is done today, but it's also a story about how we live now. I think the media is so integrated into everything we do at work and in our um, personal lives. And we see that on display like over and over again. Some of my sources stories that you'll hear in this podcast uh, I did, I've reflected on how they've resonated with me and my experience as a journalist in this crazy media time. And I, I hope that um, other people who are working in digital media or in startups uh, feel the same way. Speaking of crazy media times and startups, when you started this, you were working for The Ringer, which I've learned through SEC filings, I think it's called like Bill Simmons LLC. Um, and, and as everyone knows, that company has now been bought by Spotify. Any difference between working for a Spotify-owned company and versus an independently-owned company? How's your life changed? You know, it's funny you ask that, but uh, in my entire career as a journalist, I've worked in so many different media companies. Like, my first job was at Vanity Fair, which is this, like, classic legacy magazine. My second was at, like, Yahoo Tech within, like, their magazine stuff. And, And the third was... The Ringer, which is a startup for podcasts and um, also for digital journalism. Yep. So it, it like it's funny. It feels like I've just come full circle. Like, of course, the inevitability is that the digital media startup that I work for is acquired by someone else. And I feel like you started out similarly, right? At Recode and then Vox and <laughs> all that. To me, I've just been in quarantine, so it's been pretty much the same landscape the entire time. You can't tell me that the snacks are better. (laughs) Nothing's changed. Um, I mean, I wish I was enjoying really fancy snacks right now, but uh, it's just all my own terrible cooking. (laughs) So obviously you and your public relations person uh, would prefer that I listen to this on Spotify. Can I hear it anywhere else or is it a Spotify exclusive? 
No, you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to listen to it on iTunes, you're welcome to, and you're welcome to give me a five star rating and Apple Podcast. Nice we call it now. Yes, good. <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Apple Podcast, or Apple. you can listen to it on Stitcher. You can listen to it on anywhere. It's free, and um, I hope that everyone listens to it. I agree. Go listen to it. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, Peter. Take care. Thanks again to Alyssa Bresnak. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani, who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring it to you for free. And thanks again to you guys for listening. Be well. See you soon.